you should have had enough time to, to turn to Luke chapter 18. We'll be in verses 35 through 43. And uh, this is the, the account of the blind man who receives his sight. And oftentimes we think that, you know, it was Jesus, when Jesus said, receive your sight, that he became a seeing individual. But I'm going to present that I think he saw a lot more. I think he saw long before Jesus healed his eyesight. And so, in a few moments, we'll read the text, and I want you to look and read the. And as you read along, the question I want you to think about as we read through the text in just a few minutes is, um, what did the, when did the blind man really begin to see? Or what did the blind man see before he could see? I think that those are some important questions. So, before we get there, let me just give you a quick overview of where we've been because Jesus is traveling up to Jerusalem and this is really the end of his... He, he's, from chapter 9, he's been traveling to Jerusalem. Chapter 9, he began his trip to Jerusalem. In fact, in chapter 9, I believe verse 51, it says, and he set his face towards Jerusalem. He was going to go there to suffer and die. In fact, prior to this idea of him setting his face towards Jerusalem um, was Peter's confession. Who do men say that I am? They gave a bunch of answers. And then he said, but who do you say that I am? And he said, you are the Christ. And then Jesus said um, that the disciple is not above his master, that Jesus, that I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be delivered into the hands of sinful men, and I'm going to die, and on the third day I'm going to rise again from the dead, and a servant is not above his master. The things they do to me are the things they're going to do to you. And then they begin to travel to Jerusalem, and he begins to teach them about what it means to be a follower of his, what it means to be a disciple. And so along the way, he, he uh, performs four miracles. He heals the disabled woman. He heals the man with dropsy. He heals the, the ten lepers. And he heals this blind man that we're going to be talking about today. We're going to see that he teaches the disciples how to pray. He teaches the disciples about resurrection. He teaches the disciples about their value in the kingdom. He teaches the, the, the disciples about the priority of the kingdom. He teaches the, the disciples to be ready for his return. He teaches the disciples about repentance about the kingdom of God. He delivers the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, um, the cost of what it costs to be a disciple. He delivers the, the parable of the prodigal son and he talks about his return. So these are just a few of the things. He's preparing his disciples. Why? Because he's going away. Who's going to take up the ministry when he's gone? The disciples. That's one of the keys of a disciple. And as you know, discipleship is a key theme in our church. In fact, our mission statement is being disciples who make disciples. But one of the, and that's one of the keys about being a disciple is that we reproduce. We make other disciples. And this is what Jesus, and, and we model this after Jesus. He made disciples who make disciples. These 11, event, I don't know if we could do a spiritual genealogy you could trace your spiritual lineage back to one of these 11. There's actually 12, but we, Judas, you can't probably trace your lineage back to Judas. Maybe Paul. Maybe Paul. So, back to one of the 12. Why? Because they reproduced. They made disciples. They made disciples. I hope in 100 years, maybe someday, somebody would be able to trace their spiritual lineage back to, to us, to one of you. I'm a Christian because this person reproduced themselves and made another disciple. This is what Jesus is doing. He's making disciples. So this is what's going on. 
And so that's the broader context. Just to give you a little bit of preview of, of, of where we're going to go today is we, we are going to come to an understanding that Jesus is the son of David, that he is the one who has all authority, even over physical ailments, that he is able to heal people and deliver them from their bondage. He is able to deliver them from the forces that threaten his people. We are also going to see the persistence of faith, how faith is persistent and will not allow peer pressure or any other thing keep faith from having its full effect. So those, just a little bit of overview of where we've been, a little bit of preview of where we are going. So if you will, follow along with me as we read God's inerrant word in Luke chapter 18, verses 35 through 43. Listen to the word of God. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. And this is God's inerrant word. So I, I want to begin with this idea of what did the man see before he saw? What did he see before he saw? That's where, where we, we want to go. Let's first establish a, a few things about this man. He's blind. He's a beggar. Um, that would pretty much be all that a blind man could do would be to beg. Um, because he was blind, more likely than not, he would have been seen as a sinner. He was an outcast. He was somebody on the outskirts of society. He was not uh, with the in crowd. He was somebody seen as cursed by God. We see this in, not, in John chapter 9 where there was a blind man who was blind from birth. And the disciples asked Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents? Jesus corrected that and said, neither. This is that God be glorified, but... This blind man would have been a person who made his living, his entire income would have come from his, from other people's mercies and compassion. He would have been perceived as somebody who God had disfavor on, certainly the opposite of the rich young ruler that we saw um, a couple of weeks ago. The rich young ruler would have had everything and would have been seen as blessed by God. And I think we're going to see a contrast here because this beggar is the one who is truly blessed by God while the rich young ruler went away um, unconverted. So those are just a couple of other things, a couple of things about the background or just some some foundational information about this individual. I think it's important. Here's another thing that I think is important for us to understand. And that is that he is begging on the way on, on near Jericho, which is on the way to Jerusalem. This is Passover week. Lots of people are going to be coming up this road. This was how you got to Jerusalem. To get to Jerusalem, you came up this road from Jericho. And this is a business opportunity. Because lots of people are going to be coming up this road. And beggars also understood what they would do 
As they would not sit there and say, oh, please give me a piece of bread. Oh, please give me a coin. Oh, please give me alms. What they would do is see how giving was seen in first century Judaism would have been, um, we have an obligation to give because this honors God. And so we have an obligation to be generous to the poor. So the beggar wouldn't say, give me a piece of bread, give me a coin, but rather, you now have an opportunity to give honor and glory to God. So here I am. Give glory to God. And oftentimes, uh, some of the historical studies that I've done, oftentimes they would give something, somebody would, would provide for, for uh, somebody begging, and then the beggar would get up and give great praise. Oh, this is the greatest person who's ever lived. He is God's greatest servant ever. He's next to Moses and Abraham. And, and he would extol and laud this person publicly so everybody would see what a great person this was. But this was kind of the culture of begging. So he's sitting by the side of the road. Um, crowds are going to be coming up to go to Jerusalem for the Passover. This is a great opportunity for him to cash in a little bit, make a couple of bucks. This is kind of his Christmas. Christmas season, I guess, you know, you got to make, make the money now. This is kind of his, I don't know, his Black Friday where he needs to, you know, balance his books or what have you. So he's there getting ready to, uh, to make some money on, on this deal. And this crowd is coming by and he hears the crowd and, and he wants to know what's going on probably a little early in the season. And so who is this? What's happening? This crowd probably was a little bit um, larger or, or, or more boisterous than others because we have the, the triumphal entry coming up here in just a little bit. And yes, what's the meaning of this crowd? So the front group part of the group is coming up. And hey, who is this crowd? What's going on? I want to know what's going on. And they tell him this. Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And what I want to point out is notice his response. The answer to his question is Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. His response is Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. I think he sees something. I think he's a seeing man at this point. See, the crowd sees Jesus as Jesus of Nazareth. He's the son of a carpenter. He's the son of Mary. He's a great rabbi from Nazareth who teaches and does great things. He's Jesus of Nazareth, not to the beggar. He's Jesus, son of David. He, this is a messianic claim. In other words, I think this blind man sees what others fail to see. This is a messianic title. That by saying Jesus, son of David, he is recognizing that Jesus is the one who fulfills the Davidic covenant that was um, made back in 2 Samuel, verses uh, 7 through um, 12 through 14. I think I have that passage of text um, to go on the screen. There it is. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring. He's speaking to David. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And everybody knew this was not talking about Solomon because Solomon failed. And Solomon's kingdom was not forever. 
And they were looking for a Messiah who would come, who would sit and reign in da- as, as on the throne of David, and his kingdom would be one forever and ever, and he would have all authority, all power, all rule. He would have the ability to heal a blind man. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. You're not Jesus of Nazareth. I see more clearly than that. These guys are the blind ones. I'm the one who sees. I know who exactly who you are. You're Jesus, son of David. You're the Redeemer. You're the King of Israel. You are the one who, you, who would bring healing to the blind. And we go back just in Luke chapter 1, verse 32. I think it's 132. Yeah, I wrote that down. 132. This is um, the word to Mary. And it's... And, it says, and he, speaking of Jesus, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And then over in Luke chapter 4, Jesus' um, first recorded sermon in the Gospel of Luke, he says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He is not Jesus of Nazareth. He is Jesus, son of David. Have mercy on me. He pleads for mercy. In other words, give to me what I don't deserve. I am a beggar and you are a king. I am asking you to give to me not what I deserve. Give to me out of the benevolence of a king. He is much like the beggar, or he's much like the publican that we read about previously. You'll remember the, the Pharisee went into the temple and said, I'm glad I'm not like this, this, this tax collector, but I'm a good person. I do all of these great things, and I'm not like one of these tax collectors. The tax collector said, have mercy on me, a sinner. And this beggar who sees clearly, though his eyes, though he's living in darkness physically, he sees clearly, this is Jesus, son of David. Have mercy on me. I guess maybe we should just pause for a moment and ask ourselves, how do you see Jesus? Is he Jesus of Nazareth? Is he the man who is a great teacher? And is he the man who does kind works? And he is the man who um, shows com- simply shows compassion and gives us a good example? Or is he Jesus, Messiah, Son of God, able to deliver us and have mercy upon us? I ask you to contemplate, who do you think Jesus is? Do you align yourself with the crowd or do you align yourself with this blind man? So he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the, the people in the crowd, at least at the front part of the crowd, rebuke him. Be silent. Have, you know, shut up. What are you doing? We don't know exactly why they wanted him to be quiet. Perhaps they had disdain for him. Perhaps they just... Assumed he was a nuisance or assumed that Jesus wouldn't want to have anything to do with this man. So be quiet, shut up. And what does the man do? Just the opposite. He cries out even more. In fact, the, the language here is that he screams. And you would think he would have to if people are traveling. There's probably a lot of commotion going on. He's going to get Jesus' attention. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. It is a fervent appeal. The people try to silence him, and he says, sorry, peer pressure won't work here. Jesus is passing by. I'm a blind man. I will not let this opportunity pass. Here he is. 
God, by his providence, has placed me in the path of Jesus, the one who heals blind people, the one who is the son of David, the one who has come to rule and reign. And I happen to be in his path. I will not miss this opportunity. Somehow the blind man has realized the truth about Jesus. Perhaps he's heard stories, um, but whatever it is, he will not be denied his quest for mercy from Jesus. Folks, we see that the man's faith is persistent. It does not bow to the whims of the crowd. The crowd says, shut up. Be quiet. I will not shut up. Jesus is near. I will. I will. To all of my ability, make certain that I connect with Jesus, the Messiah. I don't care how big the crowd is. I don't care how loud the crowd is. I don't care how much they push back against me. I will get recognized. I am determined to receive mercy from the Lord. He's focused on Christ. Folks, I say this a lot, but I can't help but say it again. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time. Do not allow the voices of the crowd to deter you as Jesus is passing by. If the Holy Spirit is convicting you in your heart about who Jesus is, either now or any part, point during, during this message, folks, Cry out, Lord Jesus, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And I guarantee you right now, if you cry out with all of your heart, he will have mercy upon you. Do not let the voices in your head, do not let, what will my parents think? What will my friends think? What will my girlfriend think? What will my boyfriend think? What will my parents think? They may tell me, silence those ideas. I'm telling you right now, if Jesus is near, Christ is in this place, he's out, he's There is nowhere where Christ is not present. He is convicting you right now to call upon him. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time. Do not let this moment pass. The blind man has faith in Jesus. He appeals to mercy, not to merit. And you'll recall the Pharisee and the rich young ruler appealed to merit. Look how good I am. I'm not like that person. Look what I've got. I've done all of these good things. The the tax collector and this blind man do not appeal to merit. They appeal to mercy. Lord, have mercy upon me. I bring you nothing. I'm a blind man. I got nothing. I'm a beggar. I got nothing. Would you have mercy on me? Well, that question is answered because Jesus stops. And commanded, I love that word, commanded him to be brought to him. Mark, there's a parallel account to this in the Gospel of Mark. And um, it's interesting because in Mark it says, when Jesus summoned him, he cast aside his cloak and jumped up and came to Jesus. What a great picture that is. He cast aside his cloak. He's a beggar. He's probably got one thing of value in his life. His cloak. thing that keeps him warm at night. Protects him from the sun. It is his blanket that he sleeps on. This is his one possession of value. He jumps up, leaves his cloak behind. I don't care about my possessions. I got Jesus calling for me. I'm going and I'm going to meet with Jesus, son of David. This is an awesome. And he jumps up right on. Here we go. I'm there. Forget my possessions. Jesus is passing by and he's summoned me into his presence. Absolutely, I'm going. So Jesus responds 
to this. This is, I think, really important because Jesus stops with this insignificant beggar. And you know this is, this is Luke's heart, isn't it? We've seen this over and over in Luke. Luke magnifies and exalts the outcast. Luke loves the outcast. And once again, and usually the outcasts become the heroes of the story, and I think that's the same here. Once again, he starts as the beggar, there's a reversal, and he becomes the hero of the story. In other words, Jesus had time for the least of these, and I think there's a lesson for us, folks. Do we have time for the least of these? Or are they significant? Do we tell them to shut up? Don't bother me. I've got a Bible study to go to. I got a sermon to prepare for. Jesus is going to Jerusalem to die. Jesus is going to Jerusalem and he will offer himself up for your sin and my sin, but he has time for a beggar. And then this question, what do you want me to do for you? Now, I don't know, when I read that, I'm thinking that's just kind of an odd question. It's an odd question to me because... I think of it like, duh. What do you want me to do for you? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spend, I'm going to just mention this and I'm going to bring this back in in just a few minutes. I think this is really significant because this is a test. This is not like Jesus inquiring for information. Obviously, Jesus knows what this man wants. This is a test. And I'll explain the test in just a few moments. But it is a test. It's the crux of the passage. This question is the heart of this passage. What do you want me to do for you? This is the test. Here is the blind man's response. Lord, I want to receive my sight. I want, Lord, let me recover my sight. Test question. What do you want me to do for you? Correct answer. Lord, I want to retain my sight. That's the correct answer. I want to see. And there are going to be, we're going to see massive implications to this answer. In other words, I don't want a silver coin. I don't want money. I don't want food. That's not what I want. What I want is my sight. And Jesus then turns around and says, your faith has recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And this is one of those Situations Again, we saw this, I don't know, maybe a month ago, this idea. Um, your faith has made you well. There is a Greek word for healing, and it's not used here. Another Greek word that's being used here is the Greek word sozo, and it's always used for salvation. Your faith has saved you. I want you to understand that salvation is through faith. God saves, the means that he saves us is by placing our trust and our faith in him. And faith is not just mental assent. Now, sometimes when we talk about faith, let me talk about saving faith for just a moment here. Because saving faith is not just simply agreeing with a certain set of facts. We, we often talk about um, faith having three, saving faith having three components. There is knowledge. That is, you have to know certain things. You have to know about Jesus. Somebody has to tell you about Jesus and you have to know about him. If you have no no knowledge about Jesus, you can't place your faith in him. You have to know. You have to agree with those facts also. So somebody tells you about Jesus. Jesus Christ um, is the Son of God, died for your sins according to the Scriptures and raised on the third day. And you say, well, I know those facts and I agree with those facts. You are still not saved. You have demon-level faith. Demons believe. 
Third thing, third aspect of faith. This is where the saving, and that is we put our trust in him. We trust him. So there is knowledge, there is agreement, and there is placing your trust. I don't know, I don't know if this is a great illustration or not, but here it goes. We'll just take parachuting. I've never parachuted before. I'd like to someday. And I can know all of the facts about a parachute. Understand its material makeup, understand the plane and the distance and all of these things. And hopefully I know about the little thing you pull to open it. And uh, you know all of the facts about parachuting. You probably need to know those facts. And you need to agree with them. Otherwise, you're probably not going to turn. You need to agree with them. But you have never parachuted at this point. It is not until you take the facts that you know and agree with and place your trust and jump out of the plane that you have parachuted. And you can know a lot about Jesus. And you can agree with those facts, but have you placed your trust in Him? Have you called out to Him and asked Him to forgive you of your sins, come and dwell and live His life through you? Your faith has saved you. You know about me, you agree about those facts, and you are entrusting yourself to me. Your faith has saved you. And now I want to spend a little bit of time looking at his response because I think this is important and we'll, uh, we'll see how important it was that his, uh, um, with the test questions. And immediately he recovered his sight, so he's healed, and followed him, glorifying God. First of all, he follows Jesus. He receives his sight. He is saved. And what does he do? He follows Jesus. This is discipleship language, isn't it? What did Jesus say when he called his disciples? Follow me. Follow me. I love it. In John, there's a passage there very early on. He tells, they, they ask him, you know, I mean, you know, we've heard about you. And he said, they said where are you going to spend the night? And he said, follow me. And he starts walking. I just love that picture. Follow me. And he just starts going. They did. Following him. Doing what he does. That's the mark of a disciple. His discipleship language, he follows him. So I want to go back to, and he begins to glorify God. Well, I'll get to glorifying God. But he, let's go back to my test question, to our test question. What do you want me to do for you? I want to receive my sight. There's a connection here to verses 28 and 29 where um, Peter says, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age of to come eternal life. There is a connection there. So here is the crux of the, question, of, of the issue. And this is why this is, I think, so, so powerful. What do you want me to do for you? I want you to, to heal my... To, I, I want to see, and he heals him, and he begins to follow him, glorifying God. When he asks him, what do you want me to do for you? Again, this is not Jesus' query as to what's wrong with you. I know exactly what you need. You need to understand this beggar. What do you want me to do for you? I want you to heal me. Because you see, this beggar that has zero education, he has zero skills, he has zero training. He has no source of income whatsoever. 
What's his one source of income? He begs. That's what he knows. The moment he receives his sight, no more begging. Your job is gone. It is eliminated. You have no source of income. Remember, he jumps up, leaves his cloak behind. He leaves his cloak and he says, Lord, I want you more than I want anything else this world has to offer. I am a blind man. My blindness is my source of income. But I want you more than I want that. What do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want my sight. Not simply because, and he knows good and well, as soon as I can see my source of income completely dries up. It's over. It's gone. I can't beg anymore. But you, Lord, son of David, are of greater value than my cloak and you are of greater value than my income. I want you more than anything this world has to offer. Lord, give me my sight. Your faith has saved you. And he jumps in line and begins following the Lord and begins glorifying God. I want mercy from the king regardless of any personal cost. It doesn't matter what it costs me. If it costs me my entire income, I want you, Lord. That's what I want. And he receives mercy and he begins to follow Jesus and he glorifies God. Folks, this is the appropriate response when we have received God's mercy. When God is revealed, he is to be revered. And worship is always the appropriate response to revelation. When God reveals himself to us, then it is right to worship him. And worship is more than singing our songs. Songs are part of our worship. Sunday morning is a part of our worship. But folks, you need to be, we need to be worshiping God on Tuesday. If we do not worship God on Tuesday like we do on Sunday, it is defective. So he receives salvation from the Lord and the only appropriate thing to do is to jump in line, start following Christ and giving glory to him. I don't care about my income and I don't care about my job. My cloak's on the side of the road. All I know is Jesus, son of David, had mercy on me and this is cause for rejoicing and giving glory to God. So, When God is revealed, he is to be revered. Worship is always the appropriate response to revelation. And you will note the infectious nature of his glorifying God. Others saw it and they also began to glorify God. Folks, this is why one of the reasons why we gather together and we sing, I think corporate singing Congregational singing is so important. So we're not drowned out by the music, but we hear one another sing. When I hear you glorifying God, I glorify God. And then we just glorify God more and more together. When there's an amen, when there's a praise the Lord, whatever these things are, these are appropriate and it is infectious. And it causes others to praise the Lord. The work of Jesus in this man's life brought others to praise. And I would hope and pray that in our lives we would be the source of praise for others. And not just on Sunday, but on Tuesday. We would be the source of praise. Somebody would see the way we live out our lives. I don't get it, but that's awesome. Or other believers say, man, I'm encouraged by the way my brother or sister is serving the Lord. That is encouraging to me.
So I'll kind of wrap this up. I would maintain that this man saw long before he received his sight. I would maintain that as soon as he heard this was Jesus of Nazareth, he knew exactly what, who this person was. He was no longer a blind man, at least not, at least not spiritually. Physically, he had not yet received his sight, but he saw clearly what the crowd could not, or many in the crowd could not. So the man sees clearly that Jesus is Lord. The man sees clearly that mercy from the Lord is of the highest value. More value than his cloak, more value than his vocation. Mercy from God is much more important than anything this world has to offer. And finally, he leaves all behind so to follow Jesus, joyfully praising God. Um, I don't know, it seems pretty basic and pretty simple. Jesus is Lord. Mercy from God is of, a, of greatest value upon receiving mercy. Follow him and give praise to him. Let's spend a few moments and just silence and quiet reflection and ask the Lord to maybe appeal to us or speak to us or show us something in the, the word that is significant and then we will stand and sing our final song. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on us. We rejoice in the fact that you are Lord of all. We celebrate that you are King of kings. Give you praise that you went to Jerusalem. You didn't stop in Jericho. You kept going and you went to Jerusalem and you went to Calvary, the place of the skull. And you hung and bled and died and suffered shame for our sake that we might be forgiven. And on the third day you rose again from the dead. And in that we rejoice. You called us to follow. I pray, Lord God, that this week, this week, Lord God, we would follow you. We would rejoice. And our praise and our joy would be infectious and it would draw others into praise and rejoicing as well. Have mercy upon us. Let us value you above all other things of this life and of this world. We give you praise, we give you thanks, and we ask, Lord God, that we would praise you forever. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.